You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, some of you here today are very skilled at making things with your hands. Uh, You know how to build things, you know how to repair things, you know how to take them apart and put them back together again. And I've always actually admired people like that because I'm not like that. But over the years, I have learned a great deal from watching them. I have a brother-in-law who's a home builder and a renovator. And over the years, I've noticed that sometimes Steve is able to renovate by fixing the old and making it better. But a lot of the time, he is not able to do that. He has to actually demolish the old completely and create something brand new from the ground up. Two years ago in our own home, we had Steve come and we built an addition so that my wife's parents could live with us. And in order to do that, uh, Steve had to demolish uh, a large two-car garage behind our house, and also my office of many years got demolished in order to make room for living space for mom and dad. Well, today we're going to look at a text of scripture where Jesus, Jesus who lived as a carpenter for 30 years of his life, Jesus tells us about a massive renovation project that is going to require a, a complete demolition of the old in order to make way for something brand new. Now this is the second message in our Gospel Foundation series. And today, as has already been mentioned, we're going to be speaking about the priority of making the church into a house of prayer. The priority of making the church, this church, into a house of prayer. So our text today is in Mark 11, Mark 11, starting at verse 12, and we will read to verse 25, Mark 11, 12 to 25. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, but follow along in your own version. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. 
And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whatever you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And, whatever you, and when, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. If we were to read from the beginning of chapter 11, we would find that these events and these verses occurred just after Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He's on the way to the cross. The shadow of the cross looms large in these verses as the urgency of Jesus' mission starts to press down on him. Now, you need to know something important about the way the four Gospels are written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not written as historical biographies in the same way that we write them today. Rather, each Gospel writer takes the historical storyline using the history of Jesus but they weave the incidents together, often in different ways, in order to make theological points. And in our text today, Mark weaves together the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, and teaching about prayer and its priority into one teaching unit. These three seemingly unrelated incidents converge together to teach us something most important. The main point of the passage before us today is to clearly teach us that God's purpose for the church is for it to be a house of prayer. God's purpose for the church, God's purpose for this church is for it to be a house of prayer. Now, the miracle of the The fig tree is unique among all the miracles that Jesus performs in the Gospels because it's the only one in all the Gospels that ends in destruction. Now, if you read it the wrong way, you're going to miss the point of what Jesus is seeking to teach us through it. A lot of people have been disturbed by this particular incident involving Jesus, but Jesus doesn't curse the fig tree because he's annoyed that there's no... Uh, fruit on the tree. Verse 13 tells us plainly that it was not the season for figs, and everybody knew that in that day. The way the text is put together by Mark shows us that this incident with the fig tree is intended to teach us an important spiritual lesson. Why does Mark place the incident of Jesus in the temple between the cursing of the fig tree on the one side and its withering to its very roots the next day. Because the fig tree incident acts as an illustration and an interpretation of what's going on in the temple incident. Both events have a symbolic meaning. In both places, Jesus was looking for fruit but found none. And in both places, the lack of fruit resulted in God's judgment. 
In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, churches are referred to in chapter one as lampstands. A lampstand is a place that is intended to display light. It's where you put the candles. And the lampstands of the church are intended to display the light and the presence of God to the world. But lampstands can be removed if they drift away from their intended purpose. And we find in the book of Revelation that the great church of Ephesus, the the church that the book of Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians is written to that great church. This great church of Ephesus was in danger of drifting away from its mandate and its purpose for existence within, amazingly, one generation. This one-time powerful church began to drift away from its foundational values. And so in Revelation chapter two, it says these words to the to church that is in Ephesus. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, some of you know this, but my father and grandfather both were pastors. In fact, on my dad's side of the family, Christian leaders go back about seven generations. My mom was the first believer in her side of the family, was uh, raised Roman Catholic, a kind of non-practicing Roman Catholic, but came to faith when she was about 17. Remember my grandfather, before he died, telling me once that, that most churches and most denominations will eventually drift away from orthodoxy um, within usually a 50-year period. Well, to prevent this kind of decay and decline, there is a warning and an encouragement in our passage today. So we're gonna look at a warning about the church with regard to prayer, and we're gonna look at an encouragement with regard to the church about prayer. First of all, the warning in this passage regarding God's purposes. Number one, the danger of neglecting God's purposes for the church. The danger of neglecting God's purposes for the church. I've always found it interesting what gets a strong reaction from Jesus in the Gospels. Have you ever noticed that he, he never seems to have a real strong reaction with sinners he's dealing with, which is interesting. He seems to be amazed by people's faith and lack of faith. That's, that gets a reaction from Jesus, something we don't even think about much. In the Gospels, you really don't see Jesus angry very much, but you do here and there. And I have noticed that whenever Jesus is getting angry, it almost always involves religious leaders and the way that they treat people. He never seems to get angry with ordinary people, and I think that is most significant. Most of the anger in our lives, friends, is sinful, isn't it? Um, It leads to unkind words and unkind actions that damage relationships. But the Bible clearly teaches us that there is a kind of anger that is righteous. In fact, in Ephesians it says, be angry and sin not. Be angry is a command. It's commanding us to be angry, but sin not. 
Because God, anger is part of who God is. It's a righteous characteristic of God that doesn't involve any sin. God's anger is his settled opposition to all sin and his commitment to judge it fully and justly. Why is, why is anger actually important? Why is righteous anger necessary? Well, righteous anger is an emotion that leads to action. Without righteous anger, most of the injustices in our world would never be addressed or righted. So in verses 15 to 17 of our text, we see an angry Jesus. And let's not forget that when we, when we look at Jesus being angry here, we're not just seeing Jesus who just happens to be having a bad day. He is expressing the very heart of God because that is who he is. The New Living Translation puts it this way, no one has ever seen God but the unique one, referring to Christ, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Literally in the, in the original language, it he has exegeted, he has explained God to us. So when we see Jesus getting angry here about something, we're to notice this is what God gets angry about. So what exactly is so offensive to Jesus? Uh, on first glance, his actions seem even like an overreaction to us. But are they? It could be that we have an underreaction to the very things that bother God. Now, Jesus leaves us without doubt what the problem was. He says the issue is that the sellers were taking advantage of the people who were buying sacrifices. People are coming to the Passover uh, to celebrate the Passover festival, but they're not typically bringing the, the bulls, the lambs, and the, and the pigeons with them, so they have to get to Jerusalem and buy those for the sacrifices when they get there. And what they are doing is the sellers there, they're providing a needed service, but they're taking advantage of the people and selling things for exorbitant prices. It says in verse 17, you have made it a den of robbers. They were robbing the people. Uh, some historians estimate that the markup that was going on for sacrificial, sacrificial animals was 16 times the regular rate. And what is even more astounding about this is verse 15 tells us about people who were selling pigeons. Do you see that? The seats of those who sold pigeons. Of course, they were selling lambs. In fact, Josephus tells us that just a few years after this, there's a record of them selling in just one period of time a quarter of a million lambs. A lot of animals were being sold. But in this text of scripture, it emphasizes pigeons. And that is significant because pigeons were what was bought by the poorest of the poor. The poorest of the poor were being exploited. By the way, it tells us when, when Jesus and his uh, parents went to the temple when he was 12, that it tells us that they bought pigeons, which tells us how poor they were. Jesus was raised in a very poor family. The sacred space of the temple reserved for prayer and worship had deteriorated to the level where people were being exploited and taken advantage of. 
where money was being worshipped rather than God. But most importantly, the key issue that was making Jesus angry was that the people had forgotten what the sacrifices were for. The animals were killed as a death penalty for their sin because the wages of sin is death. Yet the animals were the ones that were dying, not the sinners, because God in his mercy had set up a, a substitutionary system from the very earliest pages of Scripture that the, the animal would die and show the seriousness of sin and the sinner would go free because God wanted to show mercy and justice at the same time. The meaning of the gospel concealed in these sacrifices would very soon, in just a few days, be revealed in, in Christ's death on that cruel cross. In other words, the very essence of the gospel was being perverted by the way the animals were being sold. Sin was being trivialized. God was being ignored. The temple had become a man-centered religious center where all sense of God's holiness had been lost. The sacred had been lost. My family and our church has heard me say this so many times. This is, this is the bane of our present generation, that we've lost all sense of the sacred. Nothing is sacred anymore. Everything is profane and common. Just as the fig tree was judged because no fruit was found on it. So also Jesus comes into the temple area and the temple sacrifices and the temple would be judged because no fruit was found in it. And Jesus' action here in these verses against the temple would reach its climax when the temple was completely destroyed 35 years later. In fact, it was completely gutted six years after it was completed and it, would, it took decades to build by King Herod. The neglect of God's purposes for his people led to God's judgment on his people. The scriptures tell us, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, my friends, what is the significance of all this for our church today? Well, the scriptures make it very clear that the church is the new temple. The renovation that Jesus was doing was he tore down that old temple. Do you realize when that temple was torn down in AD 70, there has never been sacrifices offered there since? The whole sacrificial system broke down completely. It says in scripture, do you not know that you, the word you there is plural, you all, the church, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Jesus visits the church and looks for fruit. My friends, Jesus is visiting this church and looking for fruit. He's visiting us now and looking for fruit. He, he looks for sacred space. He looks to see where God is adored and loved according to truth and scripture, where, where people are loved and treated properly and where the gospel 
is not just correct theology, but believed and celebrated. And so there is a warning for all of us in this text today. It's possible, very possible, for all of us to drift away. We're drifters by nature. People drift away from what they once held. Churches drift away. Denominations drift away from what they once believed into a form of religion, into the shell without the power, into the tradition without the reality. Would you rather have a picture, husbands, of your wife? Or would you rather have your wife? When you're out uh, on, on a summer night and you're, you're gonna have a barbecue or you're gonna have a, you're gonna have a campfire, you're gonna roast marshmallows, would you just like to have a picture of a fire, uh, a campfire in front of you in the dark? Or would you rather have the actual campfire? But many of us have, have gotten used to trying to roast our marshmallows in front of a picture of a, of a campfire. It looks the same, but it's not the same. It's, it, is, it isn't the reality. We've lost the reality. It's just a picture, the form of the reality. And this needs to sober us, when, make us take stock of our lives has the gospel of Christ become common to me? Have I lost the sense of God's holiness, my sinfulness, and the absolute wonder that Jesus came all the way from the glories of heaven down here to save me from my sin? My friends, when we are more aware of other people's sin than our own, we will be also less aware of God's grace for us in our need of it. So this is the warning we need to hear from this passage. That it's easy for us to drift, for us to lose the essence and ultimately be practicing something that isn't even the real thing anymore. But locked in this text is also a wonderful encouragement and it has to do with our priorities. So number one, We've talked about the danger of neglecting God's purposes for the church. Second point, the importance of prioritizing God's purposes for the church. At the dedication of the very first temple, Solomon clearly expressed what the temple was made for. I'm a little frustrated by the fact I can only give you one verse here because it's amazing. It's 40 verses. And 19 times in those 40 verses, he mentions prayer, 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 prayer. I wanted you to see it, but we just didn't have time for it. So here's a sample. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people. My friends, as if you were to read that section of scripture, you would find that prayer is the dominant theme as Solomon dedicates what was considered the most beautiful temple that was ever made in Jerusalem. The dominant theme is, it is for prayer. That's what it was made to be for from the very start. And so here in Mark 11, 
verse 17, Jesus tells us clearly when Jesus comes looking for fruit among his people, what is he looking for? When they gather together, what is he especially looking to find? If we're the fig tree, what, is, what kind of fruit is he looking for? Well, he tells us in verse 17, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? He's looking for prayer. The church is to be a gathering place where all the different nations of the world can come together and pray. It tells us in Ephesians 3.12, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now boldly, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. And did you know the, the early church in the book of Acts, it makes it very clear that this is how they functioned. When the church was birthed, it, it, it functioned as a house of prayer. They were devoted to prayer, not just individually, but especially corporately, especially as a community. The day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit's birthing of the church came in answer to a prayer meeting, Acts 1 and 2. The courage to face threats when proclaiming Christ came after a corporate prayer meeting, Acts 4. The growth of the church that where it started to expand exponentially, uh, it happened after the leaders committed themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, Acts 6. The breakthrough in the church in Jerusalem where it went from being a one ethnic church to a multi-ethnic church came as a result of prayer, Acts 10 and 11. The spread of the gospel uh, from Antioch to the nations began as a prayer meeting of the church, Acts 13. The church in Philippi, where we have the, the book of Philippians uh, in our New Testament, was written to the book of the, the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi was birthed out of our prayer meeting, Acts 16, and, and on and on and on it goes. God's power is released through the church to the degree the church is a house of prayer. So the question then is this. This is the sobering question. This is the part of the message where it gets a little, un, little uncomfortable. So some of you might want to go to sleep at this point. Um, why then, if this is true, why then do so many believers in Christ neglect prayer meetings? In fact, there are many believers in Christ that have never been to a prayer meeting in their entire Christian life. Why would we neglect something that is such a part, such a vital part of what God's plan and purpose for the church is all about? I know there's many reasons, my friends. Trust me, I've struggled with prayer my whole life. I know the struggle of prayer. I know people are embarrassed to pray in public. Many times, I know many of you, though you were raised in Christian homes, some of you never heard your parents pray publicly. That's a tragedy, but it's very common. There's all kinds of issues. Many people uh, don't pray corporately with other believers because they don't pray privately. They only pray pr privately when they're in trouble. But we struggle with prayer 
on many levels. There's, there's scheduling issues. Some people work times so and they can't get to prayer meetings. I get all that. There's lots of legitimate reasons. But I think the number one reason, my friends, is why believers don't make it a priority to gather together with God's people for prayer is because many believers have not understood that this is God's purpose for the church. They don't get that. They see a gathering like this on Sunday is is mostly about being taught about God. It's about having a sermon rather than a place to talk to God. Truth is impersonal, my friends. Prayer is personal. Uh, the, The teaching of the church is not just to give us more spiritual information. God's grand purpose for us is not so that we would, we would all become smarter Christians. My, my friends, God's heart for all of us is that we would know Christ and that we would abide in Christ and that we would talk to our Heavenly Father through Christ. All the teaching that you get in this church, from now on, I guarantee you this, All the teaching is to bring us closer to God. And and prayer is the greatest expression of that closeness. To, To attend church regularly but neglect prayer meetings is like tasting the food at the dinner table but not swallowing it. You forgot the last step. All the teaching that goes on here is to take us to the grand purpose of the church, that we would manifest Christ and the closeness to God. The the great glory of the gospel, my friends, is not just that we are forgiven, though that is glorious. For great sinners like me, I never get used to the fact that I've been forgiven all my sins. It's glorious to be forgiven sins, but that's not the grand gift of the gospel. The grand gift of the gospel is God himself. God's giving himself to us so that we can know him and enjoy him and talk to him. God is not just trying to educate us, as important as that is, but to help us come to know more, not only about him as well, but to come to know him personally. Now, I know many of you come here because this is a place you you meet family and friends, and, and that is a wonderful thing about church, isn't it? Uh, It is the company of friends, edifying friendships. I love that about church. But that is, again, not the the great purpose of the church. You can meet your friends at the gym or at Tim Hortons or at the movie theater. No, the gathering of the church is primarily about knowing God and talking to him. And he wants to talk to us amazingly. And especially, oh, If I only had the time to show you this from Scripture, I'll probably be doing it more and more in our prayer meetings. But God especially wants to give himself to us as we gather collectively for prayer, as a house of prayer, not just as an individual praying, but praying with other believers. He wants to answer our requests as we pray about them together. Some of you have children who have wandered from the faith. I know what that feels like. But how do we reach them? 
I remember the, the sorrow my parents had when I was far from God. Came to faith in Christ very dramatically when I was 18, but I caused my parents a lot of grief. And they prayed earnestly, and they had the church praying earnestly for the salvation of their very rebellious son. And now I'm experiencing some of that in my own family. But how are we going to reach the wanderers and those who have wandered away, drifted away in our own families? My friends, I'll tell you how we're going to reach them. We're going to reach them by praying together about them, by desperately pleading with God to have mercy on our kids collectively, by reminding God of promises like this wonderful promise that has meant so much to me over the years. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Yes, my friends, our, our sin is great, but God's grace is greater still. Our God is, is inviting all of us, not just to learn about him, but to meet with him, to meet with him together with his people in prayer. This is what Christ died for, to make the church a house of prayer. Let's pray. Father, I know how easy it is to hear a message and be convicted at the moment, maybe even emotionally affected. And as it says in James, to be like somebody that looks in the mirror but then turns away and forgets what he looks like, it, it's so easy for us to let these things drop from our hands. Lord, we're all like that. I'm like that. So I ask in Jesus' name, please, Lord, have mercy on us. There, there have been times where I've asked you to do something significant in my life, and you, you did it. You changed me. Even though I'm undisciplined, you made me disciplined in some areas of my life that I just didn't have it in me to be. I pray that you would create this deep conviction today among your people that the purpose of our gathering is not just to be a teaching center or a singing center, as glorious as that is, but it's to be a place of prayer, a house of prayer, a place of knowing you and loving you and calling on you as our great father. For our father, the scripture says, knows what, what we need before we ask him. I pray, Father, please do that for us today. And may this church for years to come, be a place that is deeply devoted to prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.